Welcome to the Nimbus podcast featuring special guest composer Richard Blackford. For websites, all the records and Spotify playlist, look below. We hope you enjoy the third episode of the Nimbus podcast. Uh, so yes, please introduce yourself. Uh... Well, I'm Richard Blackford and uh, I'm, I'm a, a composer and I'm published by Nimbus Publishing and I'm also recorded by Nimbus Records. Great. I'm Anthony Smith and I'm the business director for Nimbus Records and am delighted to be here for this one because I was involved in at least one of these records. Yes, and I am uh, Oliver Jones, digital marketing apprentice here at Nimbus Records. Um, So where are we today? Where are we joining you uh, at? Well, we're in the basement of Bristol University Music Department in the Victoria Rooms. And I think the, one of the reasons that we're here is because I decided uh, nearly three years ago to do a PhD. I think that uh, having spent about 20 years of my life doing a great deal of media and film music, I just decided that the time that I had for study and for writing music that that means a lot to me, particularly concert commissions, I was really just trying to steal two or three months of the year um, to fit in with other film commissions and and media work. And uh, about three or four years ago, I just thought I'd had enough and I wanted to go back to study again. Um, And I realized that there were great gaps in my knowledge of contemporary music. And that by doing a PhD with Professor John Pickard here at Bristol University would be an opportunity to not only study scores, but to actually compose under supervision and to have a weekly critique sometimes on the work that I was doing. So now I'm in my third year and um, I plan to graduate (laughs) as a a PhD um, sometime later this year and I've written over 90 minutes of music for my portfolio which includes a violin concerto, a niobe, a piece uh, for string quartet and string orchestra called Calon which will be premiered at this year's Cheltenham Festival, Uh, five Naidu songs uh, for mezzo-soprano, clarinet and string quartet and a few other things besides. That's why we're here. And would you say that your composing style has changed since starting this course? I I would, Anthony, because one of the things is that I've had time uh, to devote to composition rather than just squeezing it in between other things. So uh, Calon, um, which is an extraordinary piece because uh, it's a study in different tempi, so the string quartet and the string orchestra go consistently in different tempi at the same time, Uh, that took about seven months of work and I nearly abandoned it three times. So back in the old days, I would have abandoned it, Uh, but because I was working with John Picard, who said, no, 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 you're onto something interesting keep going with this and now I'm really proud of it right. so I would never have had that leisure to really pull apart a piece or just let it stew for a couple of weeks then come back to it uh, and develop it so I think my language has developed a lot
when you're speaking about reading poetry, perhaps, or seeing poetry that inspires you, do you hear music when you read the poetry? When does the music aspect of it come into your reading of the actual poem? It's a really interesting question because um, I often ask myself when I read a poem which I might be considering setting to music, what is it about the poem that is incomplete that the music can make complete? And one of the most difficult of all is Shakespeare, which of course uh, we, we start off with uh, O Mistress Mine and Come Away Death on the, on the Quilter album. And um, those were songs written by Shakespeare, meant to be sung, that's one thing, but to actually set a sonnet of Shakespeare, or as Britain did in Midsummer Night's Dream, great chunks of Shakespeare, is I think hugely problematic because the language is so rich, it's so complete in itself, what can you possibly bring to it? And very often I've taken deliberately texts by lesser poets, I'm not saying Akhmatova is one of them, but poems which are quite simple or even in translation that allow still the music to bring a new element, in other words, uh, to, to find a new dimension. But uh, I really enjoyed the, uh, the Quilter album and um, I, I thought Nathan Vale and, and Adrian Farmer were, were terrific. I, I don't know Nathan, I hadn't heard Nathan's voice before, but um, I think he's got a, a wonderful English tenor. Yeah. And, um, well, we worked with Nathan, I, I have to say, I, I have to declare an interest on this one because on the basis that Adrian Farmer, our usual producer, was actually playing the piano, I got drafted in as the producer for this record. Mm. Um, which is a bizarre thing for me to be doing on a regular basis. Um, for me, I was immediately struck by the relationship that Nathan and Adrian formed. And if you are making this kind of intimate music, I think that is essential because that relationship has to be very strong mm. so that they can convey the sentiment both of the piano music and of the, the, the written poetry. Um, we've worked with Nathan on a couple of other projects. Firstly, when he was a chorister at Christchurch, um, which is one of the kind of longest-standing relationships that Nimbus has in the in the recorded catalogue, um, and um, we definitely see him as as exactly you described. I think he's going to be one of those great British tenors, English tenors. Mm. He has a really clear diction and and was the perfect voice for for these songs. Yes. Um, what was your favourite? I know what mine was. Well, I, I, I really enjoyed the, the, uh, the, the O Mistress Mine and Come Away Death yeah. uh, right at the <clears> very <throat> beginning. I, I, funny enough, I've set both of them uh, just as incidental music for a, a village production. I, I live in a beautiful village in Oxfordshire and they, 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 they've, they've staged a number of Shakespeare plays, so I, I have set them. And I always find it's amusing in Quilter when... Um, when he, the, the line is that sing that doth sing both high and low so when he goes low he sings the highest note <laughs> so it's kind of obtuse yeah. and uh, that always makes me smile yeah. so when I set it I set a low note for the low and a high note for the high but he does it the other way around and then then there was come away death which which was beautiful and and uh, I love the way that uh, he sings that very poignant high note on slain and I'm, I'm slain and, and also weep um, the, the great melancholy there with that long melisma on the word weep which he does really beautifully can sing for high and 
everything from the recording session. They recorded it three times only. Um, they did it twice, uh, listened to it, and then came back and did it once more. And the, the track on the record is the complete third take. Mm. Uh, and there was nothing else added to it at all. They both understood exactly what it was that I think Quilter was trying to say about about the Shakespeare words. Um, and, and it's a really, really beautiful song. And again, I think something that interestingly, going back to what you said earlier, stands on its own two feet without the scaffolding of the rest of the place stood around it. Um, it. It comes in its own right on that basis. You could hear it independently by itself yes. and still be captured by the emotions of the, of, of the music. Yes. Um, One of the things that also made me, made me think a lot when, when I listened to his setting of Come Away Death was that uh, in the five Naidu songs, um, by, uh, I, I, which I set recently, yeah. the Sarojina Naidu poems, uh, there's a poem which is almost identical uh, sentiment uh, called um, A Poet to Death, and it begins Tariawalo Death, and it's a contemplation of a young person facing mortality. And um, I, at the great challenge, I think, to a composer is not to be sentimental on um, something, a subject of that, of that matter. Uh, and so uh, when I approached that poem, um, I used really, really strict musical forms like canon and ground bass. In fact, a canon goes over a ground bass. And yet somehow the emotion is, is generated. Um, and what I love about Quilter's settings is that there is no hint of sentimentality at all. It's absolutely straight. It's yeah. from the heart yeah. and it, it goes to the heart. Yeah. Now, we've, uh, we've enjoyed discovering Quilter. Um, we recorded the soprano songs, the songs for female voice, and then there is a third album that will come out probably later this year, early next year, which is um, a combination. So Nathan will be coming back. And, and Charlotte Rothschild will be doing the, the, the other half of the soprano ones. But uh, it's been a very, very good exploration. Beautiful. I think, I think Quilter is an underrated British composer. Mm, me too. Come away, come away, death. I need such Cyprus. Let me be Shroud of white, 
what were your thoughts listening to Poe Bailey? I think she's amazing, but uh, I wasn't really familiar with this idea of um, the duet. Um, I, I enjoyed particularly a, a little learning, with, which was a duet with Frank Sinatra, and then Baby It's Cold Outside with Hot Lips Paid. What a great name. <laughs> I love that. Name. Um, and um, yeah. in fact, I, I know both of the... the, the both of the pieces, and I found it a bit annoying uh, mm. that Frank's, particularly Frank Sinatra, whenever there's a pause in the phrasing, he's always got some wisecrack yep. or some comment to make. And there's part of me that was just saying, just be quiet for a few moments, Frank, and yeah. let, let Pearl do her bit. Yeah. yeah. You, do you know what I mean? Yeah, Pearl Bailey has such an enormous personality. This is my first time listening to her, actually, as well. But I mean, just it's just brimming over in all of her songs you know mm. like she just is trying to like rein in her personality I feel the entire time and you're right I think I think Frank Sinatra sort of treads all over that a little bit a little bit so yeah. mm. it, it the, there was clearly an element of something that works better live and as a stage experience than ever can come across as, as mm. an on record mm. having if, if, if we could create a scenario where we could see both of them on the stage and an interaction between them and a rapport then these things, I think, would have come across as less irritating. Mm. Um, as people who spend their lives in a blind arena, we, we don't have visual elements to putting out records or streaming or downloading. Um, when something like that happens that is almost visually distracting at that point, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think you, you, you kind of latch onto the fact to think, right, great, you know, we'll, we'll listen to the Sinatra track. That's got to be good. But actually... I wanted to listen to the things that she did by herself. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. She, I thought the voice was was extraordinary, um, and, and and a real character came through it. And she does this wonderful double entendre, doesn't she? You know, it's, there's always something a little bit sexy, yeah. a bit outrageous, lurking beneath what seems to be quite an innocent lyric. Yeah. yeah. And she reminds me a little bit of Mae West in there. Very in, much. In, in that yeah. Hey, Pearl, what's bugging you, girl? Too much knowledge, Frank, too much knowledge. Well, explain it to me. Well, well, I started to school mm -hmm. at the age of six. One of the real quiz kids. Yeah, started reading and writing and such. Usual start. As time went on, I studied lots of other things. Uh-huh, like, uh... No, most of them didn't hurt much. Well, I had other teachers. Well, I got my diploma. I was real, real smart. That's pretty frame, huh? Of my knowledge, there was no doubt. That's pretty obvious. Yeah, but lately I've ascertained. That's a big word, too. <laughs> it wasn't even a start. Let me tell you what I found out Look at the size of my ear, pour it on You know it started with a man Uh-huh And the man, he was grand Hated the truth He had a line that would make a bird sing well, This kid really came on, I can see that Cause you were much too smart To be afraid at the start a little learning is a dangerous thing. Well.
well. I'd like to hear. That it was very much a it was very much a kind of um, a, a sultry, sexy moment that was being created out of almost nothing at all, and mm. um, that just sort of turned up. Mm. Great voice. I I'm, I enjoyed discovering her for the first time. Yeah, too. me too. And actually, my favorite thing about her was I mean, I'm used to jazz singers singing perhaps about more sort of romanticized visions of things, you know. But I mean, Paul Bailey, one of my favorite songs of that album was her talking about getting wolf whistled at, walking down the street and the kind of like mixture of frustration and sort of things like that. She sings about very ordinary sort of like scenarios as opposed to sort of extraordinary ones, which I liked a lot. One thing that, about it that I find quite interesting, just as a musician, is the amazing facility that they both have for rubato. Um, because when Frank's doing his, his commentary lines, or then she does the same to him. He, he starts singing, and then she, she raps a little bit in between. And uh, what's amazing is that they kind of always come out in the right place, so they're ready to begin their phrase. So uh, you think, you know, how do they do that? They're obviously really listening to the beat and thinking I've got you know, just another couple of moments of beats to get in this little word or yeah. this little phrase, because I'm sure it must, they must have rehearsed it to an extent, but it's so spontaneous, it's so improvised, isn't it? And they're real masters of that. It's actually funny. We had um, Martin Jones on an earlier episode of the podcast. Mm -hmm. He was talking about a very similar thing in terms of, but on an orchestral level. He was talking about how the Boston Orchestra had this ability to swing perfectly on tempo in a way that other orchestras didn't have that same ability. To. Yeah. Well, as I live and breathe, will you look who's coming here? <laughs> Here's someone I didn't expect to meet. Well, what you doing down here on Rampart Street? Well, Jackie. I'm telling you, I'm going down here and try to hop and jump at this mad fish fry. What's that? Have you ever been to New Orleans? Well, you can understand what I mean. Cause all through the week is quiet as a mouse. But on Saturday night, they go from house to house and they're rocking. You say they're rocking? Home, they're rocking. Oh, I bet they're having a ball. You never seen Same such a hooping and a pooping till the break of dawn. Yes, they're rocking. Oh, baby, I bet they're having a ball. They're moving. Let's go down there. You never, never seen, seen such a hooping and a pooping till the break of dawn. But listen, Pearl, what's the admission? Nothing. All you got to be is be an entertainer or musician. And I'll tell you, hey, you got anything to do? No, I believe I'll go on down here to the fish fry with you. Uh, Pearl, have you a double? What's what? I just wanted to ask for I'm making it trouble. Well, ain't nobody gonna make me mad, is it? I, you know, I don't want to bring you down, but your man's over there in the corner acting like a What's clown. he doing? He's rocking. You say he is? That man is rocking. Is somebody over there with him? You never saw such dancing in the pants until the break of dawn. Is he alone? I ask you no, once he more. Ain't. He's, He's rocking. I think I've seen him. Okay, now, so this was a discovery for me. Um, a discovery in terms of. I had no idea how successful she actually was um, as, as a performer and in her career. Um, that, was, that was quite a revolution to me. Mm. I didn't really know where she fitted within the, within the, the hierarchy of that period. Mm. Um, not a name that has, that, not a name that, that continued beyond that generation into my generation. Mm. She lived to be a hundred, which yeah. is amazing. So think of the lifetime she must have had, and and, and the span of music that she saw in in her life, yeah, and what a wide spectrum she she herself uh, achieved with the ballads and the the jazz, the blues, all of those things. 
Like she certainly moved with the times. There was as as music evolved, she didn't dinosaur and stick with the one thing that she was good at at that moment. She moved straight into the next one. Yeah. And you have to ask the question: Was that her? Was there a producer? Was there a manager? Who was the person that was? enabling her to extend that career mm. um, beyond a very short phase that, that might have been, really. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've got to be honest, uh, I think her versatility was fantastic and things like that, but I felt it was, a, I don't know, a little bit of a step down from the Poe Bailey, just because Poe Bailey's personality I just connected with so much. I just thought she was so great, how it was always sort of flowing out. And stuff like that, and I couldn't, I couldn't connect to B Wayne quite in the same way. But I mean, I think she's brilliant in her own right. I think I just sort of fell for Paul Bailey a little bit. I think listening to polished. like the, I felt she was polished. Yeah, I, I felt that that this was a, um, a a very professional, very well rehearsed, very slick performer. Somebody who worked hard to make sure that it came across absolutely perfectly mm, every time. Mm, mm. And and in an era where we were used to our kind of jazz musicians being um, improvisational and spontaneous, this is this is everything but spontaneous. Mm, this mm. is this is really high quality mass entertainment yeah. um, and it must I think have come out of this long association with Larry Clinton as, so. as his chief vocalist so uh, it, as you say it was a kind of well honed instrument and you know working with him those amazing arrangements uh, that was all part of I, I imagine he had a very very strong say in terms of the product and the style yeah. that they, they wanted I, to and I think you're right I think it, there, was, there was a good part of what was happening that, that he was developing his own Man, that he was managing his own style and therefore in the same way that he wanted any other performer within the orchestra to change with that style mm. the voice was just one of those instruments mm, and, yeah. and she was she was somebody who was his go-to vocalist yes, yes. which meant that she performed a lot that meant that she perfected that art very well and she developed a huge following ah so pure ah so bright with her beauty on my side, oh, so mild, oh, so divine, she beguiled this heart of mine. Ere I saw her sweet face, on my heart there was no trace of that love from above that in sorrow now I face. But alas, thou art gone, and in grief I mourn alone. Life a shadow does seem and my joy. Do you have, have you had any experience writing for individuals before? Oh, many times, mm. yes. Um, both vocalists as, as well as, as instrumentalists. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, um, uh, the music drama that I, I wrote on Martin Luther King, I wrote for Simon Estes, the, the legendary uh, baritone. And so I was writing very much for, for that instrument. But uh, even now, the stab at Mater, I'm uh, writing for particular soloists who I've worked with before. I uh, don't know whether I should announce them now because they haven't been contracted. <laughs> <sorry, that's> <laughs> <laughs> they probably don't even know I'm writing it for them. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it's, it's wonderful when you have a good experience working with a, a soloist to, you know, to then write a new piece for them. What do you factor into? Oh, I was going to. What do you factor into writing for? Do you factor in? personality to a certain extent do you factor in 
their preferences? What is it that you sort of think about when you're writing for someone? A lot of it is personality, and when we were doing Niobe, which was uh, about a, how uh, a very feisty, beautiful woman blasphemes against one of the, the gods, the Greek gods and the goddesses, and the goddess uh, inflicts this terrible punishment and kills all her sons and all her daughters. So when I was talking to Tamsin Whaley-Cohen about the fact that I was rather interested in this unjust treatment of women, she said immediately, I really identify with this because I get so upset about the stories about honour killings and Sharia law yeah. today. Yeah. She said this is such a contemporary story and um, the way she was speaking, she obviously had a, a tremendous amount of, of feeling and passion for it. And so I'm sure that I built all of that into her music. Um, and, and her performance was not only amazing uh, orally, but visually to watch this very beautiful and gifted young violinist battling with the orchestra. And in the end, the orchestra completely overwhelms her and she's struggling for survival right into the last bar. And so that part of that drama was very much born out of the fact that I was writing it for her and that over a number of meetings and, and suppers we talked about the material. So do you think the opposite would be difficult if you were asked to write a piece of music with, for an unspecified ensemble with unspecified performers? Do you think that would be less easy or just less rewarding? It would just be different. Yeah, okay. Uh, I think I would always want to know who they were, but, but if I knew nothing about them, then all my energy would just go into the, the musical idea, the musical structure or the concept, yeah. which would be unrelated to them. Um, and occasionally that has happened. But it's, it's always great knowing the, the performers. And the young mezzo, Rosanna Cooper, who sang mm. the Naidu songs, mm. I went to a couple of her recitals when she was still at the Royal College of Music. And I thought, well, what an amazing personality she's got. And there were certain parts of her tessitura that I thought, right, I know exactly what I would like to achieve in terms of um, uh, exploiting certain tonal colours. And, and uh, So you write for the instrument, whether it's a voice or whether it's a violinist or a string quartet, you, you, you like to write for the instrument that you know is going to be performing it. In an ideal world. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me. Where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops. That's where you'll find me. Somewhere over the rainbow, bluebirds fly. Birds fly. Well, there are two things that I associate you with. Um, one is Oxford, um, because you live in the most beautiful Miss Marple-type village <laughs> just outside Oxford that I think has ever been discovered. 
Um, and secondly, uh, choral music. Mm. Um, some of the very first ways that, that, that we were introduced to you as a record company was through choral music. Um, and I think it's interesting that, that this month we have uh, a recording of choral music from Oxford. Now, how do you feel about that? You're talking about the William Hayes. Yes. Well, it's a complete revelation. I'd never heard of William Hayes. And, and I mean, what an amazing composer, but what an amazing man, too. Yeah. You know, that he was responsible, or he oversaw the Hollywell Music Room. Uh, he wrote um, on all sorts of... He was a real Renaissance man. Absolutely. And he was a really good composer as well. You know, that um, uh, the... the whom, whom then does Jericho deride, it's a really cracking bit of choral writing, which, which I think is, is every bit as exciting as Handel, with, with trumpets and drums and uh, really animated choral writing. So why have we never heard of William Hayes? Uh, that, that's exactly the question. How and why have we never heard of William Hayes? How did he disappear and, and, and you know, need Matthew to... to dig him up and, and, and put him back on the table again. I think it was an incredibly brave project for, 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 for Matthew and, and Keeble to put together for their first recording. Um, I think it would have been very easy for them to go down a, a well-trodden path. Mm. Um, and, and I think it was brilliant, brilliant piece of decision-making to come up with Hayes. And, and musically, not at all disappointing. Not a bit. And the organ concerto as well, um, which... which uh, he apparently was a very good organist yeah. himself and was exploiting all the new different stops that, that were available to him. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It, it, it's quite Italianate, I think, isn't it? It's kind of rather rather Vivaldi-influenced and, uh, and as one would imagine it would be. Very Vivaldi, very Handel. Um, it's got all of those elements to it that we are very, very familiar with. And yet, if you mention William Hayes to everybody, anybody now, they would, they would draw a blank almost. Mm, uh, mm. the fact that the orchestra is there as well um, I, I thought it was a, a, a thoroughly entertaining piece of music that mm. you could just put on sit back and enjoy um, and then I read the liner notes and, and discovered that this was somebody who, who 
we none of us knew anything, if if at all, enough about. Um, and he conducted Handel as well. Yeah. I think I read in, in the notes yeah. as well. So you know he was well in with some of the greatest music making that was was going on at the time. So. I think I think it's a real discovery. I think it's great. Um, this is also it marks the first new release that CRD will have for quite a long time, and certainly the first one since that they've been distributed through Nimbus. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's a it's a great project for us to to be involved in because it it, it ticks so many boxes. It's mm-hmm. it's extraordinary to to feel that even in today where we have billions of opportunities to stream virtually anything at all, there is still music that we are completely unfamiliar with. Um, And somebody who was incredibly well-known, popular at the time when they were were living and composing. Um, how, How on earth did that disappear? When did he have time to sleep? Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, between between running other people's festivals, writing music, uh, attending lectures, and and uh, conducting Handel, when, you know, when was this man ever eating and sleeping? <laughs> yeah, it's great. when you're there what's playing in your head well uh, I, I suppose the first thought I have is Christchurch Christchurch Cathedral and the amazing choir that they have there and the whole tradition of English Renaissance music but they also do quite a lot of contemporary choral music as well um, people like John Rutter um, Bob Chilcott uh, are frequently performed by the university choirs mm-hmm. um, and yes and the, the other thing is the um, gone completely blank. Uh, the Sheldonian, yes. Let's start again. <laughs> the other thing is the Sheldonian, uh, uh, where you hear often fantastic performances of orchestral music as well. It's a rather enclosed acoustic, and I remember Martin Brabin's conducting Elgar II not so long ago, and it's deafening in there. Right. So it's not perfect for concerts. And I think we, all us... Oxfordshire residents are longing for the time when Oxford has a purpose-built concert hall. Yeah. It's incredible that they don't have one, considering the wealth of the city yeah. and the need for one as well. But uh, anyway, my wife and I love to go to Oxford for concerts and um, even songs sometimes. And there's, there's a great richness of music in the city. There are hundreds of musical venues, lots and lots and lots of venues where music is happening mm-hmm. all day and every day in Oxford but there is no permanent, proper concert venue. Um, And I wonder whether that decision is almost self-protecting itself. At the point where you put a concert hall on, Mm. some of the the smaller venues would definitely struggle. But I I agree. Algar 2, Sheldonian Rooms, no. (laughs) That's going to be difficult. But the Hollywell Music Prom is a wonderful acoustic for chamber music and uh, and song and recitals. that, That really is a gift. Uh, but it's very small. It's uh, it's you know nothing like the Wigmore Hall yeah. in terms of size, and uh, so 
I think if anyone's listening to this that has a spare thirty million pounds, absolutely, uh, <laughs> concert hall in Oxford would be great. Well, and I I went to Keeble um, to meet with Matthew and meet with Edward Higginbottom, um, and the what is that? I don't know, it's a cathedral church. I can't remember what it is there. Chapel, I suppose. The chapel at Keeble is huge. Mm. Absolutely huge. I think it must be the biggest chapel in Oxford. Um, and if it were at all a concert hall, it would be absolutely the right kind of space. I mean, it's vast. Mm. Um, I'm not quite sure they'll be able to knock it down yeah. and redevelop the space. <laughs> Converted. Um, but yeah, there are, there are plenty of very good, good venues in Oxford, but there, there isn't a, a good symphonic venue, there isn't a good opera venue, mm. um, which I suppose means that you get on the train and you head to London. Yes, or the nearest you've got is Reading, the, the right. Octagon, which okay. is, it's, it's fine, but it's not really a world-class no. uh, hall, as, as the area really deserves. when we were in the middle of the battle for Beethoven's symphonies. Um, and that was because we were competing with um, Hogwood and Norrington to get the first complete Beethoven symphony cycle on original instruments. Mm. So I've always been of the opinion that whichever Beethoven you grow up with is the one that you will enjoy forevermore. And, and therefore, for me, the original instrument performance is far outweigh any modern instrument performance that I've ever heard since. Um, we were the first to complete the Beethoven symphonies by a matter of days and weeks, I think. And, and at the point, having put that pen down, we immediately then started on Schubert. Um, we recorded all of the Schubert symphonies and then, as all record companies do, put them out individually and then put them out as a box set. And what we have here is the bits that didn't make it onto the box set. So we've decided to put this out as a single record in our orchestral favourites series um, because I think these are pieces that definitely ought to be heard by people who are, like I was when I first started, exploring music for the first time. And if you wanted to dip your toe into some of Schubert's orchestral work, you'd be hard pushed to find a better place to, to start. I, was, I really enjoyed the, um, the ballet music for Rosamund. Yeah. And at the same time, I was quite glad that Schubert didn't achieve his early ambition to be an opera composer, because otherwise we wouldn't have had all those amazing leader and the symphonies and the chamber music. But, um, but, but it's, it's wonderful music. The one thing I thought, did you find this, uh, Anthony, that um, there's an extraordinary nod to rule Britannia? In, in the uh, yes. the ballet music. Yeah. And I thought, 
was that known or accidental? Because it, it comes back two or three times. Where was Schubert at the point of writing this? I suppose could well have been. Yeah. But there's, you, you definitely get the sense of the tune running around two or three times as you're, as you're listening through it. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And, and it's also the music slightly reminded me of Borjak. I can't quite say why, but there was just something slightly like the Ninth Symphony yeah. in it as well, which of course would have preceded Borjak by quite a long quite time. Quite a long way, yeah. But um, Dvorak must have known Schubert's music. I guess. Yes. It, uh, I, it, again, struck me immediately. I, I, I agree with you. The Rosamund, the ballet music, is, is a, a perfect introduction for not only the orchestral music of Schubert, but anybody who's looking to try and listen to a piece of orchestral music for the first time. Mm. You can't fail to be amused and entertained by it. <laughs> I loved the fact that in some ways, going back to what we were talking about earlier, they, they gave us some of the raw energy in orchestral music that the early jazz singers had in, in, in themselves as well. Um, there was an awful lot of exploring the music for the first time during those recording sessions because nobody knew quite how the instrument was going to behave, mm. um, how the strings were going to do it, and, and, and how we were going to get through some of these pieces. So it was very much seated your pants music making at a time when the music industry had become very sterile. Mm. We were using digital recorders. We had bands that had played, orchestras that had played music hundreds of times before they got it into a recording session. So it was very slick. Yes. And along came these mavericks in terms of the original instrument brigade and uh, delivered something that was entirely rough and yet refreshing at the same time so for me I think it was a great period of exploration. Yeah it's really interesting comparing um, the Hanover band with the LSO on your the yeah. other orchestral I know. Um, uh, uh, release and, and the, the brilliance of the LSO by comparison with the mellowness of the Hanover band. Uh, I'm no expert at all, but I think the, the Hanover band would have been using F trumpets there, yes. which is a very kind of mellow sound. And then you get to the Tchaikovsky with the LSO, and they're playing B flat or C trumpets. And suddenly the sound is so incisive. Absolutely. And, and cuts right through. 
Um, you must explain um, why. What makes the F trumpet mellower? What makes the B flat trumpet uh, slightly more abrasive? Do you um, mind? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think okay. it's to do with the bore of the instrument. Yeah. Uh, so I think the um, the F is a wider bore, uh, and so um, if you went to one extreme, you'd have a flugel horn, which is as mellow as you can get with this with this huge, huge bore of of, of instrument. Uh, whereas the um, uh, the C and the B flat trumpets are narrower bore. I'll probably get a few letters. We probably get slated by brass musicians. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think my understanding of it also was that that in in the LSO who are playing on the the Tchaikovsky record, of course, all the instruments are exactly the same. Mm. In the Hanover Band record, we were playing with the instruments that we could get our hands on at the time, and therefore you don't have as much. Um, uniformity from one instrument in the same desk to the yes, next yes. Um, which would have been absolutely true at the time they weren't all be, they weren't all playing the latest instrument they were playing the instrument that they had available to them It always begs the question, doesn't it, that if um, Beethoven had had a nine-foot Steinway yeah. to work on, would he, A, have preferred it, B, would he have written differently? So um, we do have these miraculous instruments today that are very largely the result of the need to fill huge concert halls, mm. which didn't exist in those days. Mm. And, um, and so one wonders what... Um, Particularly classical romantic composers uh, would have 
felt to hear their music performed. I think Tchaikovsky would have been thrilled because the writing is so brilliant. I agree. Um, I mean, brilliant in the sense of bright and, and uh, dynamic. Yeah. And everything that's dynamic about a contemporary symphony orchestra, I think, would have thrilled him. And particularly the way that string players play now with that extraordinary... I think both the, 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 the precision of the instruments would have thrilled any composer of the time, but also the professionalism of the musicians um, would have been amazing, I think. I, I don't know. I think there is, a, there is a school of thought that people... I, I don't know any composer looking back in history who went back an instrument from the time that they were forming. Mm. Beethoven always played on the latest, most up-to-date. He was one of the ones who challenged instrument makers to deliver something that was more and better all the time. Yes. I think you've been thrilled with a nine-foot Steinway. Mm. Um, unless you are a classic car enthusiast, you want to drive something that is really comfortable. And, and I think the instruments we have today are, are remarkable. Yeah. I, musicians and, and audiences will argue backwards and forwards. I think we are very blessed to have a moment in musical history where we have the opportunity to listen to and debate both. Uh, and I think we would be a poorer society if we didn't have both of them. I quite agree, yeah. Voda at all, um, and um, Tchaikovsky wanted to destroy the manuscript. Yes. He was so self-critical mm. and had such set such high standards for himself, um, and yet it's got some fantastic music as well. I don't think it is on the same level as as the Fifth and the Sixth Symphony by any means, but it's uh, it's fascinating. And uh, also, it was the first time that he had used um, a celesta. And, uh, and very prominent harp part bass clarinets, I mean, all sorts of very, very interesting scoring. And, um, and it's got that agitated, tempestuous sort of string writing that, uh, that does permeate uh, those last two symphonies as well. And Manfred, the wonderful Manfred symphony, which is also hugely underrated, I think. So uh, I also found it interesting that um, the opera was based on Ostrovsky, um, um, I, as you know, Anthony, I'm a great Janacek fan, yeah. and Ostrowski wrote uh, the play from which Katya Kabanova comes. So there's an interesting connection between Tchaikovsky uh, taking on Ostrowski's work and also Janacek uh, later on, wow. the beginning of the 20th century. But it's a, it's a strange story, this Voya, Voya Veda one, and, and for me it had something a bit in common with the Tolstoy Kreutzer Sonata yeah. story, the idea of the jealous lover coming back from the war and, you know, jealous husband and wanting to kill the lover, but it, it turns out... I think rather better for the lover. I think, I think, I think, I think this, one, this one is definitely lover one. Yeah, <laughs> it's unusual. I, I like, um, I thought it was interesting that the Voivoda was included on this mm. record um, because it is not 
at all as well known. Um, and I think it shines a light on the personality of Tchaikovsky that many people never get to see. Mm. Uh, the symphonies are an entirely different personality to, to, to this, really. Um, and I think it's a, it's a good... It's a great piece of um, uh, of additional music to have in amongst it, really. Mm. Yes, it's a great story. It's a really beautiful story, and, yeah. uh, and and I think the music speaks the story incredibly well. Do you think uh, Tchaikovsky really wanted his piece of music to be destroyed, or do you think that you know when artists do that, do you feel as if they really want to destroy that thing, or do you think they're just saying that? Um. It's it's hard to tell. I can't get in inside his mind, yeah, yeah. but um, it's it's happened quite a lot in history, and I, I I think that artists are quite genuine that they wanted their their work destroyed. I know I felt I'd want to really? destroy a few of my early pieces. Um, the trouble now is there's always some photocopy floating around, mm -hmm. but um, whether you actually destroy them or whether you actually emotionally destroy them or disown them right. and, and say. It was the best I could do at that time, but in fact it doesn't measure up to what I regard as the standard that I would like to be remembered by. Mm. Um, so, I mean, Tchaikovsky wasn't short of wonderful pieces to, for his legacy, so it, perhaps this one, there were just too many unhappy associations with mm. it. Yeah. It's interesting because um, my, my musical on King, um, recently the two separate people have uh, said we should revive it okay. and I won't, I don't want to get involved uh, because there are so many unhappy associations with it right. and um, now revive it you won't get involved in it, would you allow somebody else to, because it's out there, somebody could, could, somebody could pick it up and, and play it and... Absolutely if, if somebody wants to take the, the various songs and make yeah. a new libretto and a right. new production um, and invite me to the premiere, that will be great. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to have putting anything to do with putting it together. Again. Right. Mm. Now, we, as, as our recording relationship, we're also looking into your back catalogue as well. One of the projects that we're hoping to bring out later this year is something that you wrote quite a long time ago. Dragon Songs for Granny Chat. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, it, is that something that you emotionally parked or deleted and moved on and that we've now encouraged you. Why has that come out onto the table now? Well, I kind of forgot about it. Okay. Um, and it was... So you didn't tear it up? You just got put on put in, put on a table in the corner? Yeah, I, I always liked the piece. Uh, it was a commission from the Finchley Children's Music Group. And the only reason I thought about it was because John Picard, the yeah. professor of music here at Bristol University, said, I've just written a piece and recorded it for the Finchley Children's Music Group. And then I remembered, not only had I written the piece, but it had been recorded at the Royal College of Music in great, great environment at the concert hall. Um, and Christopher Rayburn, one of the legendary producers of Decca, produced it. And it, I, I remembered it as being of amazing quality. So I, I had a, a look through my tapes and I discovered the original quarter-inch master tape and then took it to Wyston and... Um, and, and uh, I think it was Gerald uh, yeah. arranged for it to be played. Yeah. And then Adrian Farmer listened to it. He said, this is fantastic quality. Not only the sound quality of the recording, but the actual performances are amazing. And uh, I thought, well, I'll submit it. <laughs> because it was never released. No, and I, I have to say, I think it's, it's the... Um, 
if ever there was an argument not to tear something up, um, then I think this is it. It's a, it's a fabulous piece of music, and I think we're really looking forward to bringing it out later. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us uh, here in Bristol. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Ollie. And I hope we haven't made you late for your lecture. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. Well, we look forward very much to seeing you at Nimbus again soon. Thank you. Take care.